Hi, this is Nathan. My passion is to provide Christ-centered Bible teaching and resources that glorifies God and will encourage and equip you to grow spiritually and live a Christ-centered life. If you would like more resources to help you understand the Word of God and cultivate a passionate love for Jesus that turns the world upside down, please visit deeperchristian.com. Now, grab your Bible as we dive into this message from God's Word. Well, if you have your Bibles, uh, Philippians chapter 4, I know last week we were talking about potentially starting a new series on repentance and idols and altars and all that kind of stuff, and I do want to get to that at some point, um, but I don't feel like I'm fully ready. (laughs) So I'm like, Lord, what do we do? So one of the other things that's just been pressed upon me, at least in this time, this day and age, uh, is the mindset of a Christian. And so I thought it'd be interesting to walk through like a mini-series of looking at the Christian mindset specifically in the book of Philippians, and maybe even more specifically in Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. And uh, so I want to kind of set the stage today more to like prep where we're heading in in terms of Philippians chapter 4, and then I I just want to start walking through this passage over the next few weeks. Uh, So today's going to be more of an overview in one sense, but what I want to do is I just want to read Philippians chapter 4, verse 4 through 9, just so that it's in front of us, and just so that you understand kind of my heart as we're heading into this idea of the mindset of a Christian. <clears throat> so if you have your Bibles, Philippians chapter 4, I want to start in verse 4. Uh, Paul, if, if you remember, he's in prison, which we're going to get into in just one second. But think about this from the light of the fact that he's not writing from comfort. He's not writing from ease. He's not writing from, you know, a pampered bedroom, right? He, he's writing from a jail cell. So ponder that in terms of the Christian mindset. Uh, as he says these words. So Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 4. Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And in case you missed it, again, I will say, rejoice. Let everyone come to know your gentleness. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with gratitude, make your requests known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever things are true, whatever things are honest, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are a good rapport, if there is anything of virtue and if there is any praise, think on these things. Do those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. What an incredible passage. And uh, again, <clears throat> just in this day and age, as things get darker, as the craziness <laughs> continues to increase, we, we live in a day and age where I think the mindset of a Christian is becoming more and more critical. Where we're living in a day where we are driven by fear. And we're living in a day and age where we're driven by the social norms. We're living in a day and age where the political correctness. We're living in a day and age where the lawlessness, we're living in a day where all this stuff is being pressed in upon the church. So how does a Christian, or how is a Christian supposed to think and function in light of all that kind of stuff? That's, that's really what I, get, what I want to get into. 
And uh, so again, what I want to do this morning is to almost kind of lay a groundwork for where we are heading. And I think the only way to properly understand what Paul's doing here in Philippians chapter 4, which is going to be our focus, is to look at Philippians as a whole. So we don't have all the time this morning to read the whole book of Philippians, but that would have been fun. I'm very tempted. But I know some of you are leaving right after this thing, and I don't want to prolong you any longer than you have to. Actually, that's a great idea. We should prolong you longer than you're supposed to. But anyway, uh, so instead of reading the whole book of Philippians, which I would encourage you if you want to join us in this study, I'd love for you to read the whole book of Philippians and just get, in, get it in your mind. Let me just walk through a quick overview with you of the book itself. Uh, it's interesting when you, when you think about the city of Philippi, uh, Philippi in Paul's day was in this place called uh, Macedonia. And if you have no idea what that means, I had to look it up last night too. I'm like, where, where is Macedonia? Because <laughs> for whatever reason, it wasn't making sense to me. Uh, so think about if you, I should have brought a map. But if you, if, you, if you can think about the Mediterranean, you have Greece sitting right kind of there in the middle of the Mediterranean. And right above Greece is, which is still modern Greece, but in the ancient days, that was called Macedonia. So it has the Greek culture, it has the Greek mindset, all that kind of stuff. And Philippi, the city, sits kind of right up there near the is it Aegean. Is that how you say it? Aegean Sea? Sits right up there, right near the coast, and it's this city. Now, what's interesting, <clears throat> in 356 B.C., so this is 350 years before Jesus, 356 B.C., King Philip of Macedonia, ho, 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 and we know that he is the father of Alexander the Great. So Alexander the Great's father comes into this town, he conquers it, and he renames it Philippi. It wasn't boastful, obviously. <laughs> you know? I'd love to conquer a place and call it Nathan. <laughs> oh, doesn't quite have the same Nathan I. That, that, that sounds horrible. Uh, <clears throat> but that's what Philip does, right? So Philip comes and he conquers this town on, in this, near the Aegean Sea. And he renames it Philippi after himself. Uh, years later, in 168 B.C., Rome is obviously growing in strength. Alexander had conquered the known world. Rome was starting to take over that which Alexander the Great has conquered. And Rome captures the city, Philippi, in 168. And if you know your Roman history, there's this big battle that happens, and which we're not going to get into. But in 42 uh, BC, it was turned, Philippi was turned into an official Roman colony, and it became a military outpost. So supposedly, it wasn't a massive of a town. It wasn't a big commerce town. In other words, I should say it that way. Right? Ephesus was one of the biggest cities of, of the region. It was down there in southern Turkey. And it, it was just had a major water port. I mean, it was this massive place. And, and it had all this commerce. And it had all this stuff going on. But Philippi was more of just like, it was just a small little military town, which is interesting. Now, <clears throat> as you start walking through stuff, and if you want to follow along, put a, put a finger in Philippians 4 and flip over to Acts 16. But we, we started hearing about Paul's journey uh, in, in Acts chapter 16. So Paul goes on his second missionary journey. And of course, he's going up through southern Turkey, which was called Asia at that time. And he's going across the Aegean Sea and he's going through Europe. right? So he's hitting all these towns in Greece and, and Macedonia and that kind of stuff. And this is around 51 A.D., but in Acts chapter 16, I just, I'm just going to read verses 9 through 12. But, but listen to this. Paul has this burn within him to go to these places and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and, it, 
and right up to this point, he has this, I, you know, has this thought of like, hey, let's go over here. But the Spirit says, no, I don't want you to go there. Hey, let's go over here. No, let's not go over there. So in Acts 16, verse 9, it says, a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man, a Macedonia, was standing there urging him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas. Now Troas is on the other side of the Aegean Sea in modern-day Turkey. So they went from modern-day Turkey, which is Asia. They went right across the Aegean Sea, which wasn't, I mean, it's not that far, right? And they land. So, so Luke records, so setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to this really fancy named town, and the following day to Neapolis, and there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. And we remained in the city for some days. Now, if you know your biblical story of, of the book of Acts, this is the location where Paul and Silas are, are in the town of Philippi. Again, it's a Roman colony, and there is this young lady who is a slave girl, and she does all this divination and fortune-telling. She is possessed by a demon. And of course, she comes, and she's accusing Paul, and Paul kind of gets frustrated, and he just says, out, <laughs> and casts the demon out. And so obviously, the people who controlled the slave girl had just lost all their income, right? I mean, how's she going to fortune-tell and, and do divination kind of stuff? And so they make a big riot, and we are told that in verse 22, uh, this is Acts 16, verse 22, that the crowd joined in and attacked them. And the magistrates, think about this, the, the people who were in charge of this military town tore the garments off of Paul and Silas and gave orders to beat them with rods. And went, by the way, they didn't know they were Roman citizens at this point, right? Because later on they find, find this all out and it causes quite a hubbub that this Roman military town just beat Roman citizens without a trial, which in the Roman days was tantamount to a major issue. <laughs> uh, but they beat him with rods, and they inflicted many, and when they inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering that the jailer to keep them safely. And having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, by the way, the inner prison, just to give some clarity here, uh, it was either likely one of two things. Either A, it was the part of the dungeon, the jail, that was kind of underneath the normal jail, so it was a little bit more secure, but it's kind of where all the sewage would run down into, which is a wonderful thought. Or it was kind of like the innermost part of the jail. In other words, it was the most secure area, right? The jailers to keep them safe. But think about this. And about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to him. And of course, we know that there was this big uh, earthquake that happened and the jailer thought everyone had left, and he was about to kill himself. And Paul says, hey, stay your hand. None of us have left. And because of all this, he became a Christian. His household became a Christian. And there was a church started in a little Roman colony called Philippi. Isn't that neat? And you could, you could almost, again, this is some presumption here, but you can almost declare that Probably one of the reasons why the jailer became a Christian is not just because of the earthquake and nobody left, but because of the declaration of the gospel that was coming out of Paul and Silas's life when they were in such, such perverse, twisted, painful circumstances that they were not acting like anybody else he probably ever had seen. You know, most people go to jail, I'm innocent, I am innocent, and they're yelling and screaming. Paul and Silas 
They're beaten with rods. They're thrown into the prison. What do they start doing? This is amazing. And they start singing and hooping and hollering and dancing. And I mean, you know, and, and declaring the gospel with their lips and with their lives. So when the jailer sees all this, it begins to form this little Philippi church. Now, what's interesting, Paul, Paul and Silas leave there, and when you come into Acts chapter 20, you see that on Paul's missionary journey, he comes back through to encourage the churches, and one of the places he goes to is this little church in this place called Philippi. Now, as you follow this story through, it's interesting that uh, by the time that Paul wrote the book of Philippians, it's been 11 years, is what scholars presume, 11 years since he had first visited Philippi. So he first visited Philippi in Acts 16, around 51 AD. So the, the letter itself was probably written around 62 AD, somewhere right in that, that time frame. Uh, we know that Paul is writing this likely from either a Roman prison cell, some scholars may say Caesarea or Ephesus, but based on some stuff in, in, the, in the book itself, it seems like he's writing from Rome. So, of course, he's on trial. He's waiting for his sentencing from Caesar. He's waiting, and he's, he's giving encouragement to this church that he had started. And it's amazing that when you read the book of Philippians, the book of Philippians is like this warm-hearted letter of joy. It's not a correction letter. Again, there's only just a couple of letters of Paul's that are not a correction letter. Right? Most, most of the letters that Paul is sending is like, you have problems. And you need to fix those problems. Like Corinth. Corinth is a classic example. You know? Corinth had issues. I mean, in fact, you read their issues, it sounds very close to modern day you know, of our church issues. Right? But Paul is addressing these, these issues. Philippians doesn't have that. Uh, Philippians has a very friendly tone. In fact, it's just like if you were writing a letter to, to a good friend and you're like bouncing over a whole bunch of different topics, that seems like what Paul's doing. That there's not a, a normal flow of argument. It's just like as something pops in his mind, he's like, oh, yeah, and just, hey, by the way, tell so-and-so hi for me. Man, give him a hug. And then he goes on for a little bit and goes, oh, hey, you remember so-and-so? Oh, we had such a great time. I mean, we just tell them hi for I mean, he just, he has this warm and friendly tone in the whole book. Now, he does give some warnings. It seems like, at least in the book, that there was some concern for disunity. It's not that they were ununified. But it seems like Paul was starting to see some seeds of disunity. So he's giving some friendly warning of saying, hey, be careful of this. Hey, be careful of false teachers. Be careful. But the warnings were coming out of more of a preemptive concern and a heart rather than a corrective thing. Does that make sense? So there is a, <clears throat> there is a tone of correction, but it's not a correction like the book of Corinthians. Again, it's more of a friendly, hey, don't be distracted. Stay unified hey, hey, don't listen to the false teacher kind of stuff. Now, the whole book, <clears throat> in one sense, is, is, a, is a, just a joyful response, but really what the whole book is is a thank you letter. The Philippians have been giving financial support to Paul over, over many years, and he's writing this, this wonderful thank you letter. In fact, if you look at uh, chapter 4, verse 16, uh, Paul says, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, in verse 16, uh, look at verse 15. Uh, look at verse 14. Verse 14, <laughs> help with context. Verse 14 says, Nevertheless, you did well having shared in my affliction. Well, how has the Philippians shared in the affliction of Paul? Well, they have been coming alongside and supporting him throughout the years. Look at verse 15. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, hey, I departed from your church, 
No church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. Paul says, do you realize who supported my ministry after I left you guys? You guys did. Hey, you are the one who financed this whole thing. Hey, you have shared with me in the ministry of the gospel that I proclaim. It's not just me. You get, hey, you have participated because you have undergirded this whole thing. And then he says in verse 16, even in Thessalonica, which is another city in Greece, even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessity. Not because I desired a gift, but I desire the fruit that accumulates to your account. So here's Paul. He's saying, hey, I just want to say thank you for all, hey, of your continuous support. And that's really what the whole letter is. In fact, even in chapter 2, he's talking about, uh, let's see if I can find it here. If I have it here. Uh, uh, Epaphroditus, in uh, chapter 2, verse 25 through 30, He's talking about the fact that here's Epaphroditus, and Epaphroditus brought some support, and of course he fell horribly sick and to the point of death, and, and the Philippians heard about it, and they were grieved because, oh, he was a good friend of ours. But now here he is well, and so Paul sends the book of Philippians, this letter, with Epaphroditus back to the church of Philippi to say, here I am, he's healthy, tell him hi, give him all hugs for me, and give him this thank you letter. That, does that make sense? So all this is taking place. Again, it's this, it's this warm, friendly. In fact, some scholars have even said that based on how Paul wrote the book of Philippians, there seems to be some indication that maybe the church in Philippi could have been argued that it was the favorite location or people group for Paul. That these were his favorites. I mean, these were his best friends. The, these were his close supporters. Now, we know he spent a lot of time in Ephesus. So obviously he liked the people in Ephesus. I'll fight for that one. I like Ephesus. I like Ephesus. But it seems like it's just a small little Roman colony. They just, there was just this deep affection. And of course, he uses that language all through this book. Uh, let me just give you this one other statement really quick <clears throat> that, that conveys that. One of, the, one of the Bible scholars that I'd read said it this way. This letter was written to conveys, convey Paul's love and gratitude for the believers at Philippi and to exhort them in the lifestyle of unity, holiness, and joy. Philippians was not written because of any crisis, but to express Paul's affection for them, his gratitude for their gift, his encouragement concerning their Christian growth, his admonitions against false teaching, teaching, and his thoughts about his circumstances. He's saying, hey, this is what God's been doing in my life, and you get to share in that reality. Here I am enslaved uh, in, where did I have this? In uh, chapter 1, verse 13, and chapter 4, verse 22, he has this indication that here I am enslaved in the Praetorium in, in Rome. It has that kind of that flavor. So here I am in Rome, and you are getting to share in my sufferings. Why? Because you've been supporting and coming alongside and, and holding my arms up, and, and you've been, hey, you've been with me this whole time. And so, hey, what I'm going through, I know you're concerned, so I'm going to let you be a part of this whole thing. Now, again, as you look at the whole book, uh, the whole book is a thank you letter. It's really important. Uh, it's, it's more of a, hey, thanks so much for the financial support kind of stuff. But again, throughout this whole book, there seems to be three, I'm going to argue, again, I'm, I'm not dead set on this, but there seems to be three major themes that run through this entire book. One theme is this idea of joy. The word joy or rejoice shows up 16 times in these four chapters. It's like Paul goes berserko on this idea of joy, joy, rejoice, rejoice. And again, you have to keep the context in mind that Paul's writing from a prison cell. 
Now, whether it's house arrest in Rome or he's actually in a prison cell, regardless, he's in trial mode. He's, he's in persecution. He's in chains. And Paul says, hey, in the middle of persecution, rejoice. Hey, in the middle of trial, rejoice. Hey, in the middle of problems, rejoice. Are you getting this? Rejoice. That's a great encouragement for today. That it seems like us in the church, we, we are enslaved to fear, we are, we are right now just kind of being mind-boggled or, you know, in this fog of just confusion when it comes to truth. And, and, and Paul says, hey, why don't you just rejoice? Rejoice in every circumstance. Why don't you just go berserk with joy? And you're like, yeah, but Paul, you don't know my circumstance. He goes, yeah, I, that doesn't matter. Because the reality is the circumstances not dictate your joy. Joy should be dictating your focus. And I think that's a great encouragement for today. Oh, no, we're in another crisis. Woo, praise the Lord. Amen. <laughs> well, what about all the political stuff we're in the middle of? Hey, praise the Lord. Hey, we're, we're, we're about to vote for a new president. And what are we going to do? And how's it going to turn out? And what happens if such and such? And, and so and so. And what about the economy? What about the corona? What about the... Paul says, will you get your focus off of that? And rejoice. And is it interesting? The only way you can rejoice in any circumstance is you have to have a proper mindset. Your focus has to be set on something correct. Because I cannot look at the crisis of the day and find a lot of joy. I cannot look at the lawlessness of the day and find a lot of joy. I, I cannot look at all the stuff that's going on and go, oh, yay. But I can if I look at Jesus. That when, when I look at the one who is my hope, when I look at the fact that, hey, we have already won, hey, when I look at the fact that he has, he's written the end of the book, hey, when I look at the fact that you realize that there's a rest in all of that, that it doesn't matter the circumstance, it doesn't matter the situation, it doesn't matter what's going on, if I have a, a proper focus, because it's in the proper focus of Jesus, that I can find my joy in every circumstance. It can be well with my soul, as long as my focus is correct. In other words, you need a proper Christian mindset, which is Jesus. Which means I just ruined the whole series. You don't even have to listen to the rest of it because the simple reality is focus on Jesus. When, when Paul in Philippians 4, 8 says, think on these things, right, what is he talking about? He's talking about the reality of keep your focus. Where? Jesus. Which is, which is the second major theme which is this idea of the mind and the attitude. That word, attitude or mind, shows up 10 times in this book. Paul is really concerned with your mindset. Paul is really concerned with the focus of the Philippian church. He was really concerned about how they were thinking. He was really concerned about, hey, where their mind was set. And that word, and there's a couple different words that he uses for mind or think in the book of Philippians, but, the, but that word is, hey, focus on this stuff. Ponder this. Meditate upon this. I'm going to talk about one of those in just one second. And then the other major theme that's running through this, at least in terms of word usage, is the word gospel. The word gospel shows up nine times. So if you at least just look at word usage of Paul, right, he's overemphasizing. He's just going crazy with this idea of joy in every circumstance. Hey, rejoice always. In case you missed it, rejoice kind of stuff. He's talking about your mindset and your attitude and then there's a focus of the gospel. I find it interesting that how those three things are intertwined. How are you going to find joy in every circumstance? A proper mindset. What's the proper mindset? 
the gospel. Now, I may be reading into the text a little bit too much, but just standing back and looking at the overarching themes, it's interesting that the stuff that Paul talks about most in this book seems to be correlated and related. I mean, they, they seem to be connected in the sense of, hey, joy, mind, gospel. And if I can encourage you, do you know what our focus should be in this day and age? Joy! So you better have a proper mindset. And it's not a diminishment of the gospel. This is an increase of the gospel. Of all the times that, hey, we should be getting crazy about Jesus, of all the times that we should be proclaiming the gospel loudly, this should be the time. Uh, if you have your Bibles again, Philippians, if you want to flip over to Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, I just want to look at one of these, one of these, quick, these concepts rather quickly with you. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, there's this pinnacle verse that I think kind of presses the entire book itself. Uh, we know that in chapter 1, Paul makes the declaration, for me to live is Christ. Do you know what Paul's obsession was? Jesus. Do you know what Paul's life was all wrapped up in? Jesus. And he says, hey, for me to live, for this very moment, for me, hey, my whole essence of my living is Jesus. In chapter 2, he's talking about the mind of Jesus, that I have to have the mind of Jesus. Interestingly, in chapter 3, he's talking about the body stuff. And again, you, you can do whatever you want with all that, I guess. But look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 again. Philippians 2, 5 says this. Let this mind be in you all, which was also in Christ Jesus. That word there for mind, some translations say attitude, but the word there in the Greek is phroneo. And hey, we, we could have some particip participation. Part participation. Let's use the right words here. So, phroneo. Say phroneo. See, by the end of this, you'll, you'll have like Greek in your mind. The word phroneo is interesting to me. The word phroneo, it means mind, but it's not just your mind. It has the idea of attitude, but it's not just your attitude. Uh, it has this idea of perspective. Uh, Eric has used the illustration of it's the glasses you wear, which is a good way of saying it. The word itself, when you, when you look at the heart of the word phroneo, it's this idea of an orientation. It, it's this idea of focus. It's this idea of a way of living. It's this idea of... Does that include your mind? Yes. Is it your attitude? Well, yes. But it's your, whole, it's your whole perspective. It's your whole orientation. It's your whole manner of living. Think about what Paul's saying. Hey, let your mind, let your whole life, let your whole orientation, hey, let, let, let that which you focus upon be that of Christ Jesus. Hey, what should drive you? Jesus, for me to live is Christ. Hey, what, what, hey, what wakes you up in the morning? Jesus. I mean, this, this should be the drive of your life. You, you want something for your mind? Jesus. And Paul says that you were to have the mind of Christ. Not just the mental mind of Christ. Hey, you were to have the attitude of Christ. Hey, you were to have the same orientation of Christ. Hey, you were to have the same perspective of Christ. What would it look like in our day if we had that? What if we genuinely had the mind, the attitude, the orientation, the perspective of Jesus. That it's not based on circumstance. It's not based on trial. It's not based on persecution. It's not based on government. It's not based on health. It's not based on, it's based on Jesus. 
Now, it's interesting. Let this mind be in you. Let this phroneo be in you. That word again, phroneo, I love this. It's in the present passive imperative. Stay seated. (laughs) This is exciting. It's an imperative, which means this is a command. If you're a Christian, this is not an option. You are commanded to have the mind of Jesus, to have the orientation of Jesus, to have the attitude of Jesus. This isn't a, well, maybe I want it, maybe I don't want it. You don't, you don't get that option. You are commanded to have this thing. This is, hey, this is, ne- this is necessary. Hey, this is just, hey, this is essential kind of stuff. It's present. And again, in the Greek, the emphasis of the present means it's the ever-present. Meaning whenever it is present, this should be evident in your life. So it's this idea of not just like the moment right now, but then you don't have to have this in the future. It's, well, right now, and then right now, and then right now, and then right now, because it's the ever-present. So whenever you live in the present, you're commanded to have this. And in case you don't understand, you always live in the present. (laughs) I know some of you live in the past, some of you dream in the future, but you live in the present. And so Paul says, hey, whenever you live in the present, hey, I'm commanding you, have the mind, the attitude, the perspective, the orientation, the focus, the life of Jesus. And it's interesting when I, at least in my translation, uh, and again, I was looking this up again last night just to verify, and it's interesting that the newer Greek, the, the newer revision of the Greek has this as an active thing, which means I'm the one going to do this. And I, I totally disagree with that concept. When you, when you look at the majority text, this word is in the passive. If that makes sense to you, don't worry about it. Just skip it all together. But it's passive, which tells you that I receive this. This isn't based on determination and grit and gusto and, all right, I'm, I'm going to have the mind of Christ. So I grip my teeth. I'm going to have the mind of Christ. I'm going to pull this thing off. I'm going to. You can't do that. That's impossible. Which is why I disagree with the, the modern Greek text in this passage. I actually think the other Greek is better. Because the reality is, is you cannot pull off the mind of Christ. How are you going to do that one? But you can receive the mind of Christ. So if it's in the, again, every time it's present, hey, whenever you live in the present, Paul commands you, would you receive the mind of Christ? Would you let him give you his mind? Would you let him give you his heart? Would you let, let him give you his perspective? Would you let him give you his mind? Hey, would you take on his attitude as long as you live in the present? Now, if you want to know what the mind of Christ looks like, read verses 6 or 8. Hey, the mind, the attitude, the focus, the orientation of Jesus is one of humility. It's one of the cross. It's, it's this idea of being a servant. If you, want to want, if you want to know what that looks like played out in the church, Paul tells you that in verses 1 through 4. He says, hey, don't look out for your own interests. Hey, hey, don't strive. Hey, don't, don't puff yourself up. Hey, don't climb the corporate ladder where you're stomping on other people to get higher in life. Paul says, uh, look at this in verse 2, 2-2. Two, uh, two, two. Fulfill my joy by being like-minded. And again, that word shows up there. Do you know what the church is supposed to be? We corporately are to have a unity of the mind of Jesus, which would be amazing, wouldn't it be? I mean, couldn't you imagine you get together on Sunday morning, you get together with, your, with the body, and you're like, wow, we all have one focus, which is Jesus. We, all, we have one drive, it's Jesus. We have one intensity, it's Jesus. We just have one turn on, it's Jesus. 
And boy, if a whole group of people got together with that focus, do you know what we'd have to call them? The church. Christians <laughs> who go to church. And a church, again, is not a location. It's not a building. It's a body that has one focus. The body has one head, which is Jesus. And what's the focus? Jesus. What's the drive? Jesus. So Paul says, have my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being in unity, and one mind. There's that word again. And then he begins to explain this. He says, let nothing be done out of strife or conceit. Nothing in your life should be done out of pride. And by the way, the word in Greek for nothing, do you know what that word means? Nothing. Nothing should be done in your life out of strife or conceit, but in humility esteem others better than yourself. Let each of you look out not only for your own interests, but also the interests of others. Do you know what the mind of Christ looks like lived out in a body? That. So I'm, I, I'm, I'm wrestling with this idea <clears throat> that, hey, in this day and age, in this hour, we as Christians need a fresh mindset. We, we need a, a, a fresh focus, which is Jesus. We need one passion. We need one drive. We need one. And again, one, one, of, the, one of the things that Paul's doing in, in the book is saying, hey, joy is huge in any, circum, any and every circumstance but you were to have the proper mindset. And again, we're going to start walking through this, but again, just listen to Philippians 4, verses 4 through 9. Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say it, rejoice. Let everyone come to know your gentleness. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with gratitude, make your requests known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will protect, guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, whatever things are true, whatever things are honest, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good rapport, if there is any virtue or if there is anything praiseworthy, think on these things, Paul says. We need to hit a reset button in our mind. We, we need to have joy. And the only way to have joy in any circumstance is to have the proper phroneo, the, the proper focus, the, the proper orientation, the, the proper mind and attitude, which is supposed to be Christ Jesus. And again, over the coming weeks, I'm going to start walking through Philippians 4, but, but I don't know about you, but in this day, in this hour, in this culture, in this craziness, the Christian needs to have a mindset that is properly focused. And I think all of us, if we were to truly be honest, have been slightly distracted, at least at some level. Let's pray. Lord, Lord, we need your mind. We need your focus. We need your orientation. We need your attitude in this hour. So, Lord, I pray that you would give us a proper Christian mindset and that we would rejoice in you always, that, that we would we'd be people known for our gentleness, that we can live anxious for nothing because we know that you are at our hand. Lord, would you let us be the people where the peace, your peace, surpasses all understanding. And may we be the people where our mind is focused steadfast upon you. 
Lord, I pray that this generation, this world would know that we are Christians, not because we wear Christian t-shirts, not because we carry Bibles around, but because they see you. That the way that we live, the way that we talk, the way that we behave, the way that we think, the way that we is all driven in one direction, which is you. And so, Lord, I just want to freshly consecrate, hand over, submit my mind, my focus, my orientation, my perspective to you. And say, Lord, will you do whatever is necessary to bring that into alignment with your word, to bring it into alignment where you are that focus, that mind, that attitude, that delight. We need you, Jesus. I need you. So come, Lord Jesus, come. We love you in your precious name. Amen.